The text today is found in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11 as we move one step further in our exposition through Peter's first epistle. And our text says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our text for today deals with how to serve God effectively. Surely that's a subject that is of great interest to every true child of God. A verse for today breaks in upon Peter's list of exhortations regarding love and concludes that short section. You remember that love covers a multitude of sins, verse 8. That is to say that love enables God's people to dwell together in harmony without allowing every little little uh, evidence of our Adamic frailty to cause problems in our relationships. Remember that love is manifested by an exercise of Christian hospitality in verse 9. And then by the exercise of spiritual gifts, verse 10, of which every member has received and which every member is responsible to minister out of love to the body for the glory of God. And that brings us to our text today in verse 11 that explains how we can effectively exercise our spiritual gifts for the glory of God. We're going to examine this text today in four parts. First of all, the categories of spiritual gifts. Secondly, how to exercise speaking gifts. Third, how to exercise serving gifts. And finally, the reason we exercise our gifts. And we begin by considering for a moment the categories of spiritual gifts. The charismatic movement of some decades ago now has renewed a great deal of interest upon this entire subject of spiritual gifts and caused, I think, all of God's people to look more closely at what the Bible has to say in this regard. And in our text this morning, in 1 Peter 4.11, we find that Peter divides the spiritual gifts basically into two categories, speaking and serving. Again, verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability that God supplies. And that, of course, is in reference to the gifts that he mentions in verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I mentioned last Sunday that there are actually five passages in the New Testament that detail various gifts. And I'm going to quickly point those out to you today, and I know that there's no way you're going to be able to write down all this information because I'm going to zip through it, but I want you to get an idea of the comprehensiveness of what is involved here. Uh, Truly, this could serve as a series of sermons and a great field of study for some time to come, but we're going to condense all of that right here and now. Passage number one is in Romans 12, 6-8. I read that passage last Sunday. And in that passage, we have listed the following gifts, prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy. There are two passages in 1 Corinthians 12 that I read in your hearing this morning. In verses 8 through 10, we have word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, healings, miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. And at the end of the chapter, in verses 28 through 30, we have apostles, prophets, teachers, Miracles, healings, gifts, administrations, 
tongues interpretation of tongues. Now, if you're listening carefully, and if you've examined these passages before, you realize that when we come to that passage at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, though all of these are lumped together, all of these items that I named are lumped together, as you look at them, they don't all seem to fit quite the same category, because some of them refer to offices, apostles, prophets, teachers, and others of them receive pertain to the gifts that are exercised by these offices and by others, miracles, healings, helps, and so forth. The fourth passage is the one in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and there we have listed apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors slash teachers, four categories, and these all are offices. Three of the ones that were mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 with an additional one added, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors slash teachers. And then we come to our text for today in 1 Peter 4.11, and we have just two broad categories that are mentioned. And it seems that Peter is sweeping everything that's found in the other passages into these two headings. Every gift is either a speaking gift or a serving gift, and understand them accordingly. So, taking these five passages and looking at them, it seems to me that we really have four categories that are involved. First of all, some of these refer to offices, apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor-teacher, the very ones that are named in Ephesians 4.11, and some of these are also given in the other passages. Secondly, we have speaking gifts, and they're scattered throughout the various lists, but the speaking gifts would include, in my estimation, a teaching, exhortation, and evangelism. Thirdly, there is a category of serving gifts, and this would involve ministry, giving, leadership, mercy, helps, administration. And you might be able to put in another one or two there, depending on how you want to divide them. Some of these can be combined together, two different words that speak of basically the same gift, or they can be divided if you so choose. And then the fourth category is the category of sign gifts. And I think it's important to view this as a separate category. And in my understanding of things, I would put a great many of these gifts into that category. Gifts such as prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, discerning of spirits, healings, miracles, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And these are gifts that had a special function at a particular time. You're probably aware, for example, that John in his gospel calls all the miracles of Christ signs. That's the word that he uses. Uh, John 2.11, this beginning of signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and so forth. Or at the end of John's gospel, we read in John 20 and verse 30, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And that's in reference to his miracles. Miracles are called signs. Furthermore, tongues are called a sign. In 1 Corinthians 14.22, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, and so forth. Tongues are a sign. Paul refers in 2 Corinthians 12.12 to miracles as signs of an apostle. He says in this text, Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Signs of an apostle, and he seems to elaborate here upon the kinds of gifts that involve healing and miracles 
And he calls these signs of an apostle and elaborates on them by calling them signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And so there evidently are gifts in these several lifts that fall under the category of sign gifts. So I would now make some general observations upon the whole um, category of spiritual gifts. Number one, it seems apparent to me that the sign gifts expired with the passing of the apostles. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.20 that the foundation of the church is built upon the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Even as Christ is no longer present bodily upon the earth, neither are the apostles or prophets still present bodily upon the earth, but they were given for a particular function at a particular time, namely to lay the foundation of the church. The foundation having been laid, it now continues to be built over these centuries until Christ comes. So I think sign gifts expired with the passing of the apostles. That position is called the cessationist position, meaning that I believe that the sign gifts have ceased. There are those who are non-cessationists who believe that the sign gifts continue on. And that's a study all in itself, but I'm just simply telling you what I have come to believe. Furthermore, in regard to all of these various signs, there are different categories, and some of these, I think, are simply examples, and therefore it's not a comprehensive list of all possible gifts that could be properly called a spiritual gift. Others could be added. But the ones that are given are sufficient to give us the general idea of how every member of the body has been given one or more gifts and therefore should exercise that gift to the glory of God and for the building up of the body of Christ. Furthermore, not everybody's gifts even fit into the same category. Not only did not everybody have the same gift or gifts, but everybody's gifts don't fit into one category or the other. In other words, if a person has a speaking gift, that doesn't mean he doesn't also have a serving gift and vice versa. In fact, uh, various offices require multiple gifts. Take the office of pastor. The Bible tells us that for a person to qualify for the office of pastor, he has to be apt to teach. That is, he has to have a teaching gift given to him by God in preparing him for that office. But the Bible also tells us that he must be the chief, a chief administrator in the church. He's called, in addition to a pastor or shepherd, he's called an elder, he's called an overseer, a bishop, an overseer. And Peter tells the elders to take the oversight of the flock of God, feeding the flock of God, taking the oversight thereof. The two main responsibilities of a pastor are teaching and administration. Teaching is a speaking gift. Administration is a serving gift. So various offices require multiple gifts. I would think the same thing is true of the office of evangelist, which I equate with the modern-day concept of a missionary. And for a person to be able to fill that office, he must have the gift of evangelism, an ability given by God to particularly proclaim the gospel in an effective way that the Holy Spirit uses to convert souls to Christ, But he's also going to need to have the gift of administration because he's got to organize the work of Christ in pioneer places where it's never been established, where there are no churches. That is going to require a heavy dose of administrative ability. And so an evangelist is going to require at least these two different gifts. So you see that that set before us as an example, I think we could say that it's very likely that many of God's children, if not most of God's children, have 
have uh, gifts to exercise in various areas, even in various categories. But Peter's twofold category, I'm convinced, covers every area of Christian service, no matter how you categorize or divide the gifts. If you don't want to categorize them as uh, offices, which really aren't gifts, but they are in in this sense. These are gifts that Christ gave to his church, the gifts of these offices and the men to fill them. And that's the way it's presented in Ephesians chapter 4. So in that sense, they are gifts. So if you don't want to divide them quite the way I did, offices and and, uh, speaking gifts and serving gifts and sign gifts... Now, whatever way you want to categorize them, I think you you still will realize that every gift is going to fit pretty clearly under one of the other two categories of speaking, on the one hand, and serving, on the other hand. The very two categories that Peter names for us in 1 Peter 4.11. And that is really similar to what Paul tells us in some places. For example, in Colossians 3.17, he says, "...and whatever you do in word or deed..." Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through Him. Whatever you do in word, speaking, and deed, service. Two categories, different names, but same idea. Whatever you do, anything you do fits into one of these two categories. The whole of life really fits into one of these two categories. Everything we do to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ fits into one of these categories. It either has to do with word Or D, that either has to do with speaking or with serving. So that brings us now to consider how to exercise speaking gifts, first of all. And then secondly, how to exercise serving gifts. Because all of us have gifts in one or both of these categories. And we are called upon to exercise them to the glory of God and the benefit of the body. How to exercise speaking gifts. 1 Peter 4.11 If anyone speaks... Let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Or it could be translated, whoever speaks. This speaking is not restricted to pastors and other church officers. It's not restricted to public speaking. The word for speak is the Greek word laleo, which is a broad word that simply has to do with human speech and can refer to both public discourse, as well as private conversation. And so this is saying anyone who speaks in such a way as to represent God's truth to other people is to do it in this way. Anyone who says anything to anyone along the lines of, this is what you ought to do. This this is what the Bible says. This is what Christians believe. Any speech that fits in that category, whether public or private, it needs to be done in this way. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. This would cover teaching, exhorting, witnessing, counseling, encouraging, admonishing. And we could probably add some others in there. Or we could probably take some of these and squash them together under some of the categories, fewer categories named. But I want you to understand that this... This involves much speech of every kind and what all Christians do from time to time. This would involve speaking in our homes, with our families, on our job, with our friends, and at church in either teaching capacity or in private conversation. If anyone speaks, 
Do you ever speak? Then this is for you. And Peter tells us the way that we ought to speak when we are talking to others, particularly when we are representing anything as something that someone ought to know or ought to do. And how are we to do that? Speak as the oracles of God. Speak as the very words of God. Speak as the utterances of God. In other words, we need to take our speech far more seriously than we normally do. We need to be aware that when we are offering advice to anyone, it needs to be the truth that comes from the Word of God. Now, no one today speaks the inspired Word of God, and that's not what Peter is saying. He's not saying when you speak, you become a prophet and speak inspired language. That little word, as, is the one that clues us in, that he's not saying when anyone speaks, let him speak the oracles of God, the very Word of God, the utterances of God, but let him speak as, with the same solemnity, with the same purpose in view, with a seriousness about what he's saying. Let him speak as the oracles of God. What Peter is saying is when we communicate truth, what we consider to be true, it must be true. When we represent a Christian position to someone else, we better be sure that it's really what God said. When we offer advice to anyone that pertains to what someone ought to do in their life, then let's be sure that it's really the Word of God that we are communicating. It's really the truth of God that we are communicating. And it's not our own opinions and good ideas. They may not even be good if they don't square with the Word of God. We may simply think them to be good. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. He's not to speak human opinions. He's not to give out his own good ideas. He's not to offer his own creative solutions to your problems. So you've got a marriage problem? Well, here's what I think you ought to do. Tell that bum to get lost. That's what I do. Is that what God says? Then you have no right to say that. You see, we're messengers, not innovators. And so here we have instructions for both how we must speak and what we must say. We must speak with a serious mindset. We must speak understanding that words carry weight for good or for bad. That what we say is going to affect others, either for godliness or for ungodliness. Either we'll move them closer to God or further away from God. Either we'll draw them closer to an understanding of truth or we'll confuse them further in regard to what God says in His Word, what is really true. And therefore, this tells us that we must speak with great seriousness. And that is communicated with this idea. Let anyone who speaks do so as speaking the oracles of God. That is phrased in such a way as to underscore the seriousness and the solemnity with which we offer our words of advice to others. 
we better not offer them quite so glibly as we are so often prone to do. And it tells us what we must say. We, we, must, we must represent the truth of God. And there's encouragement here, too, because this is indicating to us that to the extent that we do this, when we are truly reflecting to others in our own language what is the truth that God has given to us in His Word, that God speaks through us. Not in the inspired sense that He spoke through apostles and prophets and gave the very Word of God, the 66 books that we have in this book we call the Bible. That's a speech in a separate category. Those are words in a separate category. But when we are accurately reflecting the truth that is found in those 66 books, then God continues to speak powerfully through us to others. We are representing the truth of His Word, and that is a powerful tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit to minister to the needs of others. So let me apply this text, first of all, specifically to the pulpit which applies to me and to some of you. But all of you need to understand this. And I have a number of things to say about the pulpit. And the first one is that a sermon is more than merely reading Scripture. If all God intended for a sermon to be was to give out the Word of God exactly, then we would read Scripture for half an hour or 40 minutes and go home. Now, the Scripture is vitally important, and everything we do should be based upon the foundation of God's Word. But something more is needed. Something more has been designed by God. We find sermons in the Bible that are not just a reading of of, uh, passages of Scripture, but rather are explaining texts of Scripture. And that's what a sermon is to be. A sermon explains and applies God's Word to make it more clear. A sermon requires human words to explain the inspired words. And by the design of God, that is very helpful to people to understand God's truth. But the guard is that when we do this, when we stand behind a pulpit and purport to proclaim the word of God, we'd better be sure it is the word of God and not human opinion. This is very serious. This is very dangerous. It's actually very, very God-dishonoring to stand in the pulpit and there, by that very act of standing in the pulpit, purporting to represent the Word of God. Even You don't even have to say as much, but the very act of standing in a pulpit and taking the place of the preacher to a congregation of worshipers is a visual way of communicating, I'm preaching the Word of God. And it's a very dangerous thing to stand there and do that, but not give out the truth of God's Word, but instead give out human opinion and ideas, which I'm afraid is all too common in pulpits all across America and around the world today. In other words, the words of the preacher must be informed and shaped and restrained by the Word of God. His thoughts are shaped by the Word of God. His message is informed and given shape by the Word of God. What he says must be restricted by the Word of God. 
He's not free to go beyond the boundaries of God's word and add his own thoughts to those of God. He must give the essence of what God says. In other words, yes, so that people can understand what may not be as clear to them simply by reading it in the Bible. To, to illustrate it in various ways, certainly. He has a great task and a great privilege to try to help people to come to a better understanding of the very inspired word of the living God. But he better restrict himself to what the Bible says. It's a very solemn responsibility. And to do this well, obviously, the preacher is going to have to have time for study and prayer and preparation. And wise is the congregation that understands that and will encourage their preacher or preachers in that regard and will help them in that regard rather than those congregations who fail to understand the importance of this and will unwisely make demands upon their preachers that make it difficult for them to be able to prepare properly. If you're going to come before the same congregation week after week after week and say and not say the same thing over and over and over in exactly the same words, then you better get into the Word of God and prepare your heart and mind afresh with a new portion of God's Word and bring that back and deliver that to God's people. That's what you do in the pulpit. I'm convinced that the expository approach to preaching helps guard the requirement that Peter is talking about. And that the topical method tends to weaken this requirement. It is not that topical preaching can't be biblical. It can. Properly done, it can be very biblical and it can certainly represent the Word of God. It can be speaking the oracles of God as well. But just from observation, as we see various examples of preaching down through history and in the world around us, it becomes very apparent that those whose approach to preaching involves the expository method of preaching are much more likely and usually are much more careful to do what Peter's talking about, to speak the oracles of God in their sermons, and that those who take a topical approach to preaching often take a far more loose approach and feel free to add their own thoughts at any whim and fancy and just include those all with divine truth and package them up together and throw them out and make no distinction between them and many times become very confusing to the people of God. But again, it takes more time to preach expository sermons well. Topical ones can be thrown together hastily. Now, a good good topical sermon takes time as well. But if you're short on time, then I can tell you what kind of sermon you're going to preach. In most cases, it's going to be a topical sermon because those can be pulled together more quickly or more easily borrowed from others. But what Peter is telling us is when the preacher has done his job correctly, God speaks through the preacher. To the extent that the preacher is faithfully and accurately representing the truth of God's word, then when the preacher speaks to you, that's God speaking to you. And it's a solemn matter for the preacher to engage in the work that God has called him to, and he needs to do it with the utmost seriousness and reverence and fear of God. But it is also a great responsibility for you as you listen to this, because God is going to hold you responsible for how you receive or reject His Word, His truth. And it's far too easy 
to hear something that you don't like and say, well, that's just his opinion, and I don't have to pay attention to that because he's just a man. But if he's faithfully doing his work and speaking as the oracles of God, then though he is a man, he is a man appointed by God to speak to you the word of God, and your rejection of his word becomes the rejection of God's word, and you will answer for that someday. It's a very serious matter how you receive the message from the preacher as he preaches according to the very oracles of God. But Peter wants us to understand that this same truth applies in other ways to other areas of speaking, as we've already pointed out, not just to the pulpit, not just to the preacher. These instructions are if anyone speaks... Not if the preacher preaches, it's not the word for, for preach, keruxo, that is restricted almost entirely. In fact, I would say is restricted entirely to public proclamation. But this is that general word for speech, for conversation. Whoever speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. So the same instructions apply about how carefully we should shape our words. If we're going to offer advice to others, we need to be sure that we have gotten an understanding of the situation from the Bible before we speak. We better not just fling our opinions around so freely. If someone asks us advice about something and we're not sure, we should say, let me pray about that and study that and I'll get back to you on it. I need to, to give that some thought and some study and find out what God has to say about that before I offer you my advice on that subject. Because when you speak, when you counsel, when you admonish, when you exhort, when you encourage, when you give direction to others, you are commanded as a layman. You are commanded to do that as the oracles of God, to be sure that you are representing The truth of God's word, the very utterances of God, are represented in what you say. But you have the same encouragement. When you do it that way, God speaks through you. Powerful. When you witness based upon the word of God, God speaks through you. Powerful. So that's how to exercise speaking gifts. Next, how to exercise serving gifts. And Peter goes on to say, If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability God supplies. And that takes up the whole other category, everything else in our service for Christ that doesn't fall into the category of speaking, falls into the category of serving. And whoever serves, whenever he serves, this is the way he's supposed to do it. The word for serve here is diakonai, the word that is related to our word deacon. A deacon is one who serves, but all of God's people are those who serve. And we are to serve in a particular way, namely as with the ability that God supplies. And here again is instruction and encouragement. When we serve, whether our gift is mercy or administrations or helps or giving or any of these other things that were mentioned, when we serve, we are to do so, number one, with dependence upon God, recognizing that we're not serving in our own strength, our own ability, our own power, nor for our own glory, certainly. We can't do this except God enable us, but God has enabled us. That's the whole point. He's saved us. He's gifted us. And he's called upon us to use our gifts for the building up of the body as an exercise of Christian love. We're called upon to do this very thing. So God has 
given us ability, and God will continue to supply, as we are faithful, to exercise our various gifts. But we must be careful that we are always and only doing it with a consciousness of our dependability upon God. We must be doing it with great humility. Remembering the words of Christ in John 15 when he said, Without me, you can do nothing. That is to say, without me, you can accomplish nothing of any eternal value. You might do something, but it's going to turn out to be wood, hay, and stubble. You might do something, but it doesn't contribute to the advancement of Christ's kingdom. You might do something, but in the long run, it's actually going to be more harm than good. Without me, without without my help, my aid, my empowering, and without your conscience dependence upon that, without that, you can do nothing that is of any eternal value. So you must minister with dependence upon God, but with the encouragement that God will supply. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. That word supplies really means lavish supply. Originally, it was a word used for the expenses of sponsoring a Greek chorus in a Greek drama. That's where the word originated. And in Greek dramas, a chorus, which didn't always necessarily sing, another subject for another day, but was a very important part of Greek drama, required a great deal of training and preparation, and so sponsors were sought, rich rich patrons were sought to sponsor that. And of course, if you sponsored a Greek chorus, then your sponsorship was going to be put on public view and everybody could tell pretty much by the product whether you had sponsored stingily or lavishly. So if you're going to do it at all, it was pretty certain you were going to do it lavishly. If you couldn't afford to do it lavishly, you weren't going to do it at all because you just embarrass yourself. So in that way, this word came to mean a lavish supply, an abundant supply, a superabundant supply. And this tells us that's the way God supplies. And as we serve, as we recognize our responsibility to serve and come to understand the gifts that God has given us that we may serve, and we take our place of service and begin to serve in the body of Christ, dependent upon God and humble before Him, recognizing that it's all His power that enables us to do this. But as we step forward to serve for Christ, God lavishly supplies whatever's needed, whether we're talking about financial resources or strength, or other resources that need to be pulled in to make this effective, whatever is needed, God's going to supply it. Isn't that good? And that brings us, number four, then, therefore, to the reason we exercise our gifts. And that wraps up the conclusion of the text. For Peter tells us in all of these things, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And here is, first of all, a statement of purpose, and secondly, a doxology of praise. The statement of purpose is that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the only reason we ought to have for doing anything as a Christian. The unbeliever has the same requirement but doesn't understand it. We were created in the beginning to bring glory to God. But through the fall, we lost that ability. We are recreated in the new birth to be restored to do what 
we lost in the fall, and that is we now have the ability to bring glory to God again, and an understanding of our responsibility to do that. That's the only reason for living. Why am I on this earth? To bring glory to God. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why, why do I have the circumstances in my life that, that I have? To bring glory to God. Why did God allow this into my life? To bring Him glory. Everything is for the purpose of bringing glory to God. And every effort, every service, every labor is for the stated purpose and for the reason of bringing glory to God. That's your motive. That's your purpose. And every word indeed ought to be evaluated in the light of this. How does this bring glory to God? Does this bring glory to God? This that I'm doing now, this that I'm saying, this that I'm planning to do. As Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to what? The glory of God. Most of you know that text. You may know it better in the old King James. Whatsoever you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Every aspect of life should be evaluated in the light of this. We are here to bring God glory in everything that we do. And how do we know how to bring God's glory? Through the Word of God. God's Word is our standard to test everything, to see if this is the way God told us to do it, so that it therefore truly brings Him glory. And furthermore, it's got to be undergirded with the redemptive work of Christ. In all things that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, which is another way of saying that the only way we can glorify God is by our vital union with Christ. We've got to be joined to Christ. Our sins have to be justified in the blood of Christ. Christ has to be a propitiatory sacrifice before the Father before we can do anything on God's behalf. Otherwise, we are an abomination to Him. We are an offense to Him. We are enemies against Him. But if we come to Him in Christ, joined to Christ, then our efforts are are capable of being pleasing in His sight. And, and uh, we therefore need to, to undergird everything with a consciousness of the redemptive work of Christ. That's our statement of purpose. But now the doxology of praise. When Peter mentions this statement of purpose, it causes him to burst forth into a doxology. And so he concludes this section by saying, To whom be glory and the dominion, to whom belong, rather, the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Simple, clear, Kind of a general doxology, but a good one indeed. To whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is an intermediary doxology. It doesn't come at the end of Peter's epistle. Most doxologies are inserted somewhere in in the text, somewhere in an intermediary position in the text. Only three New Testament epistles conclude with a doxology. But there are a lot more doxologies that are interspersed at various parts of the letter. And that's the case before us here. A doxology of praise. Who's the object of praise? Well, it's God, certainly. Is it specifically Christ or is it more generally God? We'll leave the commentators to argue over that. I can assure you after having read a good many of them that they don't agree. So it doesn't really matter because Christ is God. And we know who gets the glory. And whether we are thinking about bringing glory to Christ or whether we're thinking about bringing glory to God, either way, that's the, that's the right attitude. And we bring glory to the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in all that we do. Furthermore, this is a declaration of praise. It's really not an expressed desire. Peter's not saying, I, I wish that all the glory and dominion will go to God. He's saying it's already there. 
to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. It all belongs to him. All glory already belongs to God, and we cannot increase his glory. All dominion is already his dominion. We can't increase his dominion. But we can acknowledge it, his glory, his dominion. We can exalt this truth in our own minds and in the minds of others. The recognition of this truth increases as we are conscious of it and continually remind ourselves and others of this great and glorious truth that God is a glorious God beyond all all imagination. That God is a sovereign God whose dominion includes everything in all the universe he created and he rules it completely and perfectly and exclusively. And these are great truths that we need to remind ourselves and others of over and over. And then Peter concludes it with that common affirmation, Amen. Amen. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's a Hebrew word taken over into the Greek and even translated over into the English. And it means so be it. But it is used in New Testament worship as a congregational affirmation. In New Testament churches, it's clear that the congregation said amen. But the indication is not that different people hollered out amen whenever they felt like it, as is common in some congregations. There were specific places where the whole congregation together said amen. Listen to 1 Corinthians 14. Paul is talking here about tongues, the regulation of tongues and the abuse of tongues. And he says, in effect, if what you speak is not capable of being understood by the congregation, they won't know when to say amen. Verse 16, otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed, that is, who doesn't understand what you're saying, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? If you speak in tongues, back in the days when that gift had not yet ceased, if you pray in tongues and you get done, nobody knows exactly when you're done because they couldn't understand what you're saying. So how will they know when to say the amen? That's what Paul is saying there. And it tells us, therefore, that the amen was something that the congregation spoke together in affirmation. And many congregations have picked up on this and cultivate this, and I think it's something that we should give attention to as well. And an amen, therefore, serves a good purpose. It it makes it clear to the congregation when the prayer is over, in the case of a prayer, and that's where we use it most often. How do you know when the person who's praying is done praying? When he says amen. And when he says amen, then you can say amen. When he says amen to indicate to you that he's done, then you can say amen to affirm that you agree with what he said and your prayer resonate, his prayer resonated in your heart and it was your heart's prayer to God as well and you're adding your affirmation to what he said. And that's the way that the whole congregation enters into the prayers of one person. We all say amen after he says amen, which is one reason why I would strongly Advocate that when you pray in public, you conclude your prayer with an amen. Whether you conclude it with the phrase in Jesus' name, amen, or not, is another subject for another day that I've dealt with before. But you don't find that ever anywhere in the New Testament. But you do find this practice of saying amen. 
sometimes when we're having a prayer meeting and a number of people are praying, some people will say amen at the end of their prayers and other people will not because some people have have come from a, a prayer culture, I guess I would call it that, where a person would not say amen if there were several people praying. It would only be the last person to say amen, and that would finalize the entire prayer time. And the idea was that the next person just picks up where the last person left off and the prayer isn't done until the last person prayed, and I understand the reason behind it. But it can be confusing at times. If you're in a prayer meeting like that, you don't know for sure whether the other person's done or not. You don't know if he's just taking a long pause. You might start in to your prayer when he's not done with his prayer. But when he says amen, you know. It's a matter of doing all things decently and in order. And then knowing when, you can jump in with the congregational amen, the congregational affirmation that says, I agree with what he says. That's my prayer too. That's the, that's the, the sentiment of my heart as well. So it's an indication of, of, of conclusion, which will avoid confusion and allow God's people to participate and enter in in that way. So Peter is giving us some very practical instructions. And he is telling us that every member of Christ's body should be an active member of Christ's body. No inactive members. Every member of Christ's body should be a serving member of Christ's body. No members who are not serving. Every member should have a, an understood, a definable place of service in the body that has some, some relationship to what he understands his giftedness to be and to learn that and to exercise appropriate service that will be in relationship to the gifts that God has given him. Peter has told us that serving the body in this way is an expression of love, love to our brothers as well as love to Christ, and that when we serve, we must be careful that we are always and only serving for the glory of God and not to bring attention and honor and glory to ourselves. And that's the way to effectively Serve Christ. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers or serves, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Shall we pray? Thank you, Father, for your word that guides us and guards us and helps us and grows us. Help us, Lord, to learn and respond and grow in the light of this practical section in Peter's epistle. Help us, O Lord, to take our place within the body of Christ and to serve enthusiastically, but seriously, carefully, but with great encouragement that when we do this, you minister through us to others. And when we do this, you supply what is needed that we might be enabled to serve according to our various abilities. Help us, O Lord, in all of this to bring honor and glory to God and to Him alone. As we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen.